If you were ever to find yourself in the vicinity of Cannon Street Station, you may be inclined to seek out that most unusual of London curiosities, the London Stone. Supposedly, an ancient stone, perhaps the remnants of some Roman house or a part of the walls, it has remained a benchmark and fixed location within London for a tremendously long time. And you would be, dear listener, within your rights to ask me, since I'm doing a podcast dedicated to the history of London, why I have not mentioned it in the story of the city so far. Well, that's because it has not appeared in the story of London until now, to be honest. The earliest reference we can find to the London Stone is sometime between 1098 and 1108, where a Londoner gave some property to Canterbury Cathedral, and this man's name was, quote, Edwacker Yet Lundinstein, which translates as Ed Walker at the London Stone. The great Elizabethan antiquarian John Stowe claimed he saw a document saying there was a land deed dating to the reign of King Ethelstan, so that's between the 920s or the 930s, which said that Canterbury Cathedral owned some land, and that mentioned the London Stone within it as well. But no one can find the document Stowe refers to, so we can only date it with any surety to the end of the 11th and start of the 12th century. What we can say is that what Mr. Ed Walker had done had clearly become a fashion. People who lived near the London Stone began referring to it in their name. They were people of London Stone, the unusual landmark becoming an identifying feature for their community. One of these people was called Aylwin, Aylwin of London Stone, whose son, Henry Fitz Aylwin, dear London Stone, was the city's newly made first mayor. It was a suitable nickname, London Stone. His was an old English family, bearing distinctive hallmarks of his Anglo-Saxon heritage. In later retellings of this era, the accounts of Robin Hood and the romantic stories of Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, there is this narrative that somehow the Anglo-Saxon resistance to the Normans was still continuing in this age, but that was all pre-Victorian romanticism and nonsense. Here we see that in reality, the oligarchs of the Anglo-Saxon dynasty had survived by staying focused on the ancient wool trade, keeping their head down and being stalwarts of the city around them. Henry Fitzilwin, whose story has a while to go yet, was clearly a very calm and strong-willed man. He would have to be. England was about to face another crisis, and London, now a commune run by the rich Eskivins and led by its first mayor, would again need to hold their nerve in what was to come. In many ways, forget that landmark. What London was going to need over the next few years was a solid, dependable and unwavering rock upon which they could ground themselves in the deeds to come. The London Stone wasn't that old piece of stonework placed behind glass in the side of a building as it is today. The London Stone was the mayor of the city facing down the events that were about to slam into it. Hi, my name is Saul and this is the Story of London, the podcast that tries to tell the history of the city as one long narrative tale. We've been trying to cram in a lot over the last few chapters, with whole chapters lasting but a single year. 
We cover four years in this one as we look at the events both near and far that were to impact upon London heavily. Welcome then to Chapter 78, The London Stone. This episode, we will be covering a few years in the story of London as it tries to cope with events taking place elsewhere, which means we need to move away from our narrow 12th century streets to visit distant realms. In those faraway places, events would happen, like rocks dropped into a still pond. The waves of these events would all smash into London in time. So this episode will take us not just across England, but out to Germany, and at our furthest destination, the Holy Land, the much-reduced Crusader states of Outremer. Indeed, that is where we will start. Two chapters ago, I described how Richard I of England, known as Evil Richard to the locals, King Yes and No to the people of Aquitaine, and the Lionheart to generations of later English folks, was lingering in a sickbed in Jaffa, suffering from malaria. He was gravely poorly and had now been joined by his new Spanish wife and sister Joanna. Despite his illness, when he was well enough to get out of bed, he seemed to be driven by his single-minded determination to retake Jerusalem, and he started marching towards it almost at once. What he didn't know was that all the Allied forces he'd been fighting with had now concluded a truce with the brother of Salah ad-Din, who was acting as viceroy of the city of Jerusalem. Richard soon realised if he was going to attack Jerusalem, he was going to have to do it alone. And this is probably why he offered to make a deal with the brother of Saladin, offering the hand in marriage of his own sister to the viceroy of the city, proposing that they become joint king and queen of Jerusalem, guaranteeing Christians the right to visit Jerusalem and ushering in a new era of peace. Alas, his sister soon let it be known that she was not going to marry a Muslim, so Richard was reduced to purely military options. As it came towards the winter of that year, the weather in the region turned. In December of 1191, Richard reached the town of Bietnuba, only 12 miles from Jerusalem, but severe rains precluded any assault on the holy city for a while. He spent Christmas at Latrum, west of Jerusalem, in the company of his wife, Berengia, his sister, Joanna, and King Guy of Jerusalem. When he discovered how it had been deserted by his allies, his rage, apparently, was incandescent and terrible indeed. Meanwhile, back in France, King Philippe had finally returned from his own abortive part of the crusade, to a hero's welcome. Philip had cut and run from the crusade, no bones about it, but in order to retrieve his own reputation, he was now going around saying that his sudden abandonment of the crusade was entirely due to Richard's insolence, pride and treachery. King Philip of France also tried claiming that he'd never fallen sick while he was in the Holy Land. Rather, he hinted that perhaps he'd been poisoned. This was, of course, utter rubbish, but it helped build a case that Philip was hoping to build, so that he could break the truce of God placed upon crusaders and that he could attack Richard's lands in France. After all, Richard had abandoned his half-sister Elise and married someone else. Philip was all up in his revenge plans against Richard, 
spies in the French court discovered that he was planning on invading Normandy. It was now that King Richard's elderly but still ferocious mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, stepped in to save the day. Eleanor immediately realised that it would be up to her to maintain the peace in the Angevin domains, and in the middle of the winter of 1191-92, determined to thwart Philip's treacherous designs, Eleanor commanded the seneschals of all the castles guarding the Angevin borders to repair and strengthen their fortifications and to ensure their garrisons were fully manned. This was timely advice, as Philip did attack one of the crucial castles on the border between the Angevin territory and the French king's territory, the castle of Guizors, in January 1192, but he was quickly rebuffed. However, King Philip of France had an ace up his sleeve, Prince John. The king's younger brother had seen his ambitions thwarted in England. Archbishop Walter of Rouen had managed to remove the useless Chancellor of England, William Longchamp, who had fled the nation. But this had not seen John come away with any power. King Philip of France wasted no time in wooing John with enticing offers. Early in 1192, after the French king found his own barons had refused to break the truce of God and invade Normandy in mass, Philip offered John all of Richard's continental domains. And in return for this, all John had to do was undertake to marry the king's half-sister Elise and surrender the castle of Gisors to Philip. And John agreed. John agreed quickly. Understand, he was already married at this point, but he agreed so damn fast I'm surprised he didn't cause himself whiplash. He sent word that he would cross the channel, pay homage to Philip for the promised lands, and would lay Normandy on a plate open for him. Luckily for the Angevin state, news of this got out and got to the Queen Mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and she sailed to Portsmouth, arriving on the 11th day of February, just in time to prevent John and his force from leaving from Southampton. She also decided to cut off John from any support he could have in England, so that February she summoned four meetings of the Great Council, held in turn at Windsor, Oxford, London and Winchester. At these she publicly proclaimed her loyalty to the absent King Richard and made every English magnate swear a new oath of fealty to him. Then, with the backing of those magnates and the staunch support of Archbishop Walter, she threatened to confiscate all John's castles and estates if he defied her and crossed the channel. John agreed and said he would not cross the channel and returned to Wallingford to sulk for a little while. This utterly screwed King Philip of France's plans to invade Normandy. The French barons were still refusing to violate the truce of God by attacking the lands of an absent crusader, so his hands were effectively tied. Of course, London was to see, while this was going on, another issue arise way up north, a row between the newly appointed Archbishop of York and the long-established Bishop of Durham. There were excommunications being thrown around like crazy, and it was actually destabilising the north of England. The Queen Mother decided to try to mitigate this, and so she summoned both men to London, to the precincts of the compounds of the Knights Templar, on March 15, 1192. 
This unfortunately led to only a half-hearted resolution. And if you took this and then added John while sulking still, holding ambitions to take the throne, and then William Longchamp returning to England as he was maintaining, I am still Chancellor, it all set up 1192 to be a wildest year as a year before, and London watched everyone beyond its walls lurch from political crisis to political crisis. Eventually, some kind of equilibrium was found. The Queen Mother, Prince John, and just about every baron in England all wrote to Chancellor William Longchamp, and, quote, all with one voice admonished him to bolt and to cross the channel without delay, unless he has a mind to take his meals under the custody of an armed guard, unquote. On the 3rd of April, bowing to this intense pressure, Longchamp again agreed to flee the realm. His departure brought a kind of peace in the troubled kingdom. Meanwhile, King Richard had been in the Holy Land for about a year now, and it was no nearer to launching his final assault on Jerusalem. Yet it was clear that was all he wanted to do, and he focused his entire energies to this end. He had fought alongside his men, and also done logistical work alongside his men, and seemed to diligently care for their safety. To those in the field with him, this created an incredible loyalty towards this powerhouse king. He was witnessed working as a stonemason and as a labourer when the needs arose. It was claimed that during the siege of Darum in May 1192, he was seen helping to drag huge catapults for a mile across the sands. And eventually, by that July, despite falling victim to malaria's habit of returning habitually, he and his men finally reached the heights above Emmaus. From here, he glimpsed the distant city of Jerusalem. The story goes that at this moment, Richard realized his men could march no further. The crusade was over, failing in a miasma of mutual blame, recrimination, and insults. They say Richard supposedly shielded his eyes so he could no longer see the city. And he knew at that moment that he had to relinquish his dream of reconquering it. Richard returned to the coast and was just in time to relieve Jaffa from an assault by Salah Adin. There's a moment recorded in the chronicles of the time that Richard leapt into the sea without waiting even to arm himself fully, waded purposefully towards the shore in order to rally the defenders, and when he finally was fully armed, rode out in full view of the enemy, challenging any of them to meet him in single combat, none of them would take him up on the offer. This was evil Richard Malik Rick, and he'd been beaten. Why risk your life now? There were to be no more battles. When August arrived, Richard fell ill for the third time, and Salah Adin sent him fruit and snow to ease his suffering. Worn out by his endless efforts, his single-minded determination, the famine that was running rampant amidst his men, the disease that was striking both him and them down, and the disappointment caused by the loss of his allies, Richard finally agreed to a three-year truce with Salah ad-Din, the peace of Rama. The Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem was now reduced to a coastal strip that included the ports of Acre and Jaffa, 
And it also said that Christians could access the holy places of Jerusalem unmolested. After the truth, they say Salah Adin invited Richard to view the holy places of Jerusalem, but that he refused, declaring that he was not worthy. He left Acre on the 9th of October, 1192, intending to be back in Normandy or even England by Christmas. Reports asserted that his ship had been sighted near Brindisi or had stopped briefly at both Cyprus and Corfu and then sailed on in the direction of Marseille. In Normandy, expecting his almost immediate return, his subjects began to gather, ready to welcome him. And yet after that, there was no news of him. As autumn turned into the winter, the men who had fought with him, the crusaders themselves, began arriving in their homes, often to villages and towns across the Angevin territories and England, and some, they returned to London, including one Londoner called William Fitzosbord, but more on him next chapter. The crusaders returned, boasting of the brave deeds of King Richard, creating the powerful myth of this great king, but no one knew where he was. Days turned into weeks. Whispers began that some calamity had befallen him on the journey home. Across London and throughout England and elsewhere, candles were lit, prayers were offered for his safety. Other whispers began, quieter ones, hinting that King Philip of France and Prince John had colluded in a sinister plot to assassinate Richard on the way home. There was a growing but genuine fear that the French would invade Normandy. Weeks became months. That Christmas, the Queen Mother kept court at Westminster, the comings and goings of the royal state now on London's very doorstep, the city hanging on any whisper or rumour. And then the news came, and it was dark. In early January 1193, spies working for the Angevin state had intercepted a letter sent to the French king from the new Holy Roman Emperor, stating that Richard was his prisoner. It had transpired that after various misadventures, including several storms which had ruined his ships, Richard had been forced to try to return home via the land route. He'd managed to travel through Hungary safely, but eventually arrived in the territory of the Duke of Austria. You remember him? He was the guy who swore revenge upon Richard all those months ago at the Siege of Acre. Richard was captured, became his prisoner, and was in time transferred to the Holy Roman Emperor's custody. And all hell broke loose. Efforts were made to get his fast release, but the Emperor knew he could get a lot of cash out of a ransom, and also King Philip of France, seeing an opportunity to make merry upon the Angevin Empire, he was sure he'd offer him more money to keep Richard locked up. Across Europe, the huge wheels of state began to turn. The entire political status quo had been appended. Utter carnage was unleashed. I could go into the myriad details, but in truth, we need to see how it impacted on London. And that impact was profound. So the first part was, well, three months later, after having gone to Europe and coming back, Prince John, who was by now, I think we can all agree, displaying the tendencies of being a totally perfidious little shit, 
That Lent, he had returned to England ahead of a mercenary army and he was intent on establishing himself as king. He tried to get the support of King William of Scotland, but that failed. So he hired some mercenaries in Wales and he marched upon London. From here, Mayor Henry Fitzalwin would have watched as John and his forces reached the city and its neighbour Westminster and the prince demanded the Regency Council surrenders their powers to him at once. What London then witnessed was that the council refused, point blank, refusing to be intimidated at all. John would have to fight to get what he wanted. But London saw then that John was at heart gutless. He responded to this by trying to convince the Regency Council and the Queen Mother that Richard would never return. He began repeating all kinds of rumours he had heard circulating in France. The council did not budge. He even claimed that Richard was in fact already dead. Again, they did not budge. John, though foiled at this, was not done. He began stirring up rebellion, urging the magnates to join him and seizing several royal strongholds. He himself garrisoned Windsor Castle, to which Archbishop Walter of Rouen and others immediately placed under siege. Then news arrived that during that April, King Philip of France had finally invaded Normandy. He quickly took the crucial stronghold of Gisors, then overran the long-contested Vexin region, laying wide open the rest of the duchy for him to take. Philip moved with speed towards Rouen, where he set up siege engines and demanded the citizens surrender to him and deliver up his sister, Elise. Rouen resisted him, and eventually Philip returned to Paris, thwarted in his efforts to rescue his sister. Still, he owned a large chunk of Normandy now. Meanwhile, news that John's mercenary army was on its way to help him was greeted with alarm and anger back in England. So much anger and alarm that when the first mercenaries arrived on English shores, they were either imprisoned and chained if they were lucky, or killed if they weren't. The rest of the mercenaries on their way to join these guys prudently turned their ships about and sailed back to Flanders. At this point, people began to realise that an early release of King Richard was definitely off the cards, and people began to urge the Queen Mother and the nation to take a more conciliatory policy towards Prince John. If Richard never returned... John would probably become king and might well extract vengeance on those who had opposed or offended him. Eleanor and the magnates took this advice and a truce was arrived at. Under its terms, John agreed to surrender Windsor Castle and other castles to his mother, who would hold them for a certain time. If Richard had not been released by then, she would return them to John. It should be noted, however, that reports say that when Richard was later informed, while well, he was still a prisoner, that his younger brother John was seeking to take his throne, the king laughed and said in words that summed up the prince better than anyone else, quote, My brother John is not the man to conquer a country if there is anyone to offer the feeblest resistance, unquote. According to a writer called Ralph of Coggeshall, Richard had by now started to receive a constant stream of visitors from England and many other lands, much to the amazement of his German captors, and cultivated a friendship of many German princes. In better health now, he went hunting and hawking, and enjoyed challenging his wardens to wrestling matches, exchanging crude jokes with them, or getting drunk with them. A ransom was eventually demanded for his release. 100,000 silver marks the equivalent of 
two years' gross domestic produce from England. It was a mammoth task to raise. Don't forget, this is a people who had only a couple of years earlier had been financially bled dry to fund the crusade. The levels of taxation London would have witnessed were truly eye-watering. Every freeman was to give one quarter of his annual income. Those clergy living on tithes were to give one-tenth, while poorer folk had to give whatever they could. The contemporary writer, William of Newbury, said, quote, No subject, rich or poor, was overlooked. No one can say, pray, let me be excluded, unquote. The churches and abbeys were stripped of their wealth. Whole orders of monks, like the Cistercians, donated a year's worth of wool from their flocks. And it wasn't just in England we saw this. The entire Angevin Empire was raising the cash, and Anjou and Aquitaine contributed as well as Normandy. A huge amount of the ransom was raised over in France, and, for example, Cairn gave more cash than London ever did. But it just must be understood that a greater share of the tax came from England due to its much more efficient tax-collecting system. Queen Mother Eleanor of Aquitaine held a council in St Albans this year, and she appointed five men to oversee the raising of the ransom of King Richard. And those five men, and who they were, tell a story in themselves. Now, two aren't as important for our tale. We've got William de Albini, the Earl of Arundel, and Hamelin of Anjou, the Earl of Surrey and the bastard brother of Henry II. But then you also had somebody called Hubert Walter, and he was something special. Hubert had been born in Norfolk, and he'd shown his worth in civil administration and church service, rising to become the Bishop of Salisbury when Richard had come to the throne. He then had travelled with King Richard upon the crusade, and while there, Walter had been famed for his bravery, but also because he became King Richard's principal negotiator with Salah ad-Din himself. He met the emir several times. Indeed, it is said that Walter, unlike Richard, after the truce had been established, had travelled to Jerusalem to see the holy sites under Salah ad-Din's protection. And he got the Kurdish emir to agree to allow small groups of Latin priests remain in Jerusalem to oversee religious ceremonies. Hubert Walter had then led the English forces on the way back home. But when he was in Sicily, he had heard that the king had been captured. And so Hubert had turned around and tracked the king down, the first of a small group of subjects to locate him in his imprisonment, alongside a, another handful of men, including someone called William of Sanmer Anglis, who will become important to the story of London later on. Anyway, Richard had written a letter to his mother asking for Hubert Walter to become Archbishop of Canterbury. And the new Archbishop of Canterbury had been in position for only a month when he was basically placed in charge of the group raising the king's ransom. But the last two names on that list is what really excites me, because they speak of something else, something ancient. The whole nation was to raise a fortune extracted under duress. That sounds remarkably like the old Danegels of old, yeah? Then, huge sums of money were raised by the likes of the long-dead kings, such as Ethelred, or, but also, I mean, the last Danegeld we'd seen properly raised to drive off Vikings had been raised by William the Conqueror. And there was, which we well know, one place in all of England 
who had long become the experts in organising large Danegels. London. London had long been the place where huge sums of ransom money were collected to pay out. And chapter 28 of the story covers the huge sums raised to pay off the Yom's Vikings and how that was entirely organised out of London. And it was London where the first true Dane Guild had been organised, which we covered back in chapter 23 of the story, the large sum given to Olaf Tryggvason to pay him off. No, it was London that knew the old forms. It was London who understood better than any place in the entire Angevin Empire how to organise such a thing. And so the last two names on that list of five men designated for being responsible for collecting the ransom of King Richard, well, they were Richard Fitznigel, the Bishop of London, and Henry Fitzalwin, London's first mayor. And like the old times, the ancient protocols were simply rekindled. The money that was raised, the raw bullion to pay for the king's ransom, was stored in large chests in the crypts of St. Paul's Cathedral, under seals held by the Queen Mother and Archbishop Walter of Rouen. Understand, by this stage you're starting to see that because the king had been abroad for so long and his soldiers had reported him having a good reputation, and because in his absence England had suffered so much under political instability, it was now that the English people really seemed to start projecting upon Richard unearned traits of being a great king. All the evidence suggests he was a decent and driven general, but he had no aptitude towards being a king. But the hope of him began to create this mythic Richard, and as such, many of his subjects seemingly gave of their fortunes willingly. But not all did. It should be noted that his perfidious little shit of a brother, John, had agreed to assist in the raiding of the ransom, ruthlessly milked his tenants, and then forged the great seal in order to appropriate for himself the monies collected. And yet, John was not alone in doing this. It was discovered that not nearly enough money had been raised to begin with. A significant number of people had evaded payment, and some tax collectors had even made off with the money like Prince John had. The Regency Council was forced to impose a second and then a third levy, and those who had rebelled alongside Prince John were now heavily fined. That October, envoys from the Holy Roman Emperor arrived in London to see how the collection of the ransom was progressing, and they were royally entertained by the city. The city and its sister town of Westminster hosted them lavishly, but bottom line, they knew what they were here for, and when they left, they took with them about 35 tons of silver and bullion and coins, only two-thirds of the ransom money. The balance was to be delivered as soon as it had been collected. Thank you. It had been agreed by the Holy Roman Emperor that subject to the receipt of both money and a lot of hostages, so Richard didn't attack him for doing this, the king would be released on 17th of January, 1194. Queen Eleanor rapidly began assembling a fleet, and in December 1193, with the king's approval, she appointed Hubert Walter, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Justicar of England, and left him in charge of the realm as she sailed to Germany. With her, she took an impressive retinue, which included both Archbishop Walter of Rouen and the Bishop of London. After some final last-minute shenanigans, King Richard was released, and he and his mother proceeded up the Rhine to the coast and set sail 
On the 12th of March, 1194, around 9 a.m. in the morning, a convoy of ships carrying the king docked at Sandwich, and the king set foot into his realm for the first time since December 1189. The writers say the sun was shining especially brightly when he stepped ashore, and many claimed they recognised it as an omen of the great crusader's return to his nation. And it was an omen, because like any sunny day, it lasts a short time and then it goes away. The first thing King Richard did was ride to Canterbury and give thanks for his safe return at the shrine of Thomas Becket. And then he wrote to Rochester. And then finally, on March 23rd that year, King Richard, the absent king, riding alongside his mother, made a state entry into London, where, quote, to the great acclaim of both clergy and people, he was received in procession through the decorated city into the Church of St. Paul's, unquote. And there he gave thanks for his restoration. Afterwards, the king and his mother rode to the Palace of Westminster, where they were, quote, hailed with joy along the Strand, unquote. Mayor Fitzalwin and the Estuvins of London, the Commune of London, showed their dutiful loyalty and probably began removing the 1,000 or so pounds they had not paid to the ransom but were now about to pay to the king to secure their commune status. Of course, with the king's arrival, all those elsewhere who'd sided with John and Prince John himself now realised they were in a lot of trouble. The king marched to Nottingham, where Prince John's supporters surrendered before he'd even arrived and on March the 30th, Richard presided over a meeting of the Great Council in Nottingham Castle. High on the agenda was the question of what to do with that little... with John, his brother. The council wanted to auction off his confiscated possessions, but the Queen pointed out that this might drive John further into the arms of King Philip, the real enemy. In the end, the council summoned John to appear within 40 days to account for his conduct or else suffer banishment and forfeiture of all his honours titles and estates. John promptly did turn up, and him and King Richard were reconciled. Richard agreed that if he were to die without an heir, John would be next in line, not his little nephew, Arthur of Brittany. And in gratitude for Longchamp's loyal, if crap, service to him, the inept man was reconfirmed as Chancellor of England by the King. It was around this time, possibly in celebration of his restoration, that Richard added a third leopard to his coat of arms. The three leopards of England, used to this day as the royal heraldic device, first appeared on his seal and on that of Eleanor in 1194. And to purge himself of the dishonour of being imprisoned for so long, Richard stayed what appears to be a second coronation or formal crowning ceremony on the 17th of April in Winchester. Now, despite the Pope wanting Richard to go back on crusade, Richard wanted to take back his lands he'd just lost in Normandy, and so promptly raised a whole new army, and despite bad weather delaying him on the 12th of May 1194, Richard left England to bring bloody war upon France. Neither he nor his mother would ever set foot in England again. And what of London? What of London sat witnessing this? The paradoxical thing is, with all the things happening elsewhere, London for the first part of the 1190s is actually remarkably quiet. Nothing large had been built since Newgate Prison seems to have been created sometime after 1188. So in this time period, 
it had little to do and was focused upon running itself and witnessing these events elsewhere. And London would have heard of Richard's campaign in Normandy. The king brought seven grades of fury upon King Philip Augustus of France, defeating him soundly and humiliating him constantly. Philip pressed for peace, outclassed in all ways. Richard demanded everything back. After that time it spent in captivity, you get a sense of a king who was literally turning to say to any priest, prince, bishop, even the pope who demanded a compromise peace deal, that they could go... Well, no. He was saying no. Richard's fury, the fury of king yes and no, was manifest in these later years. It is said that in this era he adopted the motto Dieu et mon droit, God and my right, as his personal motto. Yeah, king yes or no. That motto, by the way, is still used by the royal family. And yet, as 1176 dawned, the affairs of far away suddenly became less important. A storm was brewing in London. Suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, beneath the very feet of the rich Eskevins of London itself and the mayor of London, the primal rage of London suddenly found a voice and the fury was directed at them. Because as I've pointed out, so far the only names we see and hear about all through this era have been those of the rich oligarchs of the city. What then of everyone else? What of the poor? Well, just the middling people of London, the ones who filled the crowds, who cheers the kings. Who speaks for them? That London stone, Henry Fitzalwin, was just about to discover that for all his talents, he did not. Someone else did. And his story and what happened deserves its own chapter as this Storm exploded upon the streets of London, and the first great revolt of the people emerged out of nowhere. And we're going to cover that in chapter 79, the next episode. Thanks for listening, and I really do hope you enjoyed this one. This podcast only exists due to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank the subscribers who have kept us going for another month and who have allowed us to maintain our fees required to just keep the podcast running. If you found this podcast entertaining, and I'm really amazed and grateful that you do, and if you can help, you can support it via the membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee site or making a one-off contribution. And if you don't have the funds or do not wish to do that, then I'd be humbled if you could simply leave a nice review or give this show five stars to impress the algorithms that dictate how much advertising a podcast gets. I'll see you next week for Chapter 79 of The Story of London. Thank you.